So I do want to just start off by getting this out there. That being in front of you makes me feel a little bit out of my element. My heart has definitely wrestled with comparison, self-doubts. And while the enemy would love to see me quit and give up, um, I can rest knowing that God will still use me in my weaknesses. So while I would much prefer to be sitting down with you in small groups and enjoying a cup of coffee and chatting about this text, I'm grateful to be standing before you um, as we walk through this text together this morning. I really have enjoyed studying and um, I brought two resources with me that I thought were really helpful in um, connecting to this study of 1 Samuel. Um, I will, res- I will uh, reference them later, actually, but one is um, 10 Words to Live By, um, Delighting in and Doing What God Commands. That's by Jen Wilkins. Um, she just re- recently wrote that. And then this one is Holier Than Thou, How God's Holiness Helps Us Trust Him by Jackie Hill Perry. I think Aaron referenced this last week. So anyway, I just thought I'd bring this um, so let's get started. Um, today we will be picking up our narrative, uh, where Aaron left off. And last week, Aaron covered how the Israelites were defeated. The Ark of the Lord was stolen and Eli and the priest and his sons are now dead. So she walked, she talked to us about the whys we ask of God, the lack of all towards God, and the glimmer of hope we see in the repentance of an unlikely character. Unfortunately, chapter five gets pretty dark when we see the presence of the ark wreak havoc on the Philistines. This morning, we are going to experience both the highs and the lows of the Philistines and the Israelites as we move through chapters six six and seven. As I go through the text, I hope you see an overarching theme of God's holiness and power. This holiness and power leads us to a heart check, just as it did both with the Israelites and the Philistines. We will consider our tendency towards replacing God with idols or adding to God with idols. And finally, our story this morning will end with Samuel back in the picture, beautifully shepherding the hearts of the Israelites through repentance. As I talk, I encourage you to put yourself in the story. So as mentioned last week, The Philistines had no luck moving the ark all around after their statue of Dagon was struck down twice. As Aaron explained, things only got worse for the Philistines. They had the ark for seven months and the whole nation was infested with mice. The people were struck with painful tumors. Many people had died and their crops were suffering. It's very easy for us to see that they could not live under the weight of God's glory. As we begin with chapter six, it's my opinion that they had a few options. They could have just destroyed the ark. They also could have fully believed in God, repented of their sins, turned from their gods and worshiped the one true God. Or they could have returned the ark to the Israelites. If you have read the text already, then you know which route they took. But before we continue and talk about the plan that they developed, I think it's important to note that they do actually believe in the power of God, his presence, and even his wrath. James James 2.19, it says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Like the demons, instead of this experience of God's holiness and power, 
changing their hearts and moving them from sin to repentance, they come up with an elaborate plan to rid themselves of God. The Philistines believe with their heads, and yet they reject him with their hearts. They want control of their lives. They don't want to submit to the holy, powerful God of Israel. Maybe you're here today, and you're still wrestling with whether you want to put your full trust in submission before the Lord. And I'm happy that you're here, and I pray that you continue to pursue the truth. Many of you are here today, and while you have put your trust in the Lord, there are still areas of your life that you are not willing to submit. Maybe you think, Lord, when it comes to my finances, I got this. Or when it comes to parenting, you might rely heavily on the parenting experts or lean on your own understanding and wisdom. Some of us say, God, I will serve you when I just have a little bit more time. But then I know that there are those of you who are praying for unbelieving family members who, like the Philistines, have rejected God. Maybe it's a sibling, a parent, or even a child. And this can be some of the hardest whys that we wrestle with. Of course, we pray and we continue to see in these chapters that God calls us to himself. So let's turn back to the text and see how the Philistines plan to respond to the weight of God's glory. The leaders develop a well-thought-out plan to return the ark to the Israelites. Their plan includes a guilt offering, signaling their desire to have their afflictions removed. They send five golden mice and five golden tumors to represent the plagues and the five Philistine cities that were inflicted. And I'm just wondering if anyone else thought, how in the world did they make golden tumors? (laughs) And I mean, I seriously found myself thinking about this for faults far too long. And so, yeah, you can just imagine that right now. it's, It's really hard to imagine, but that's what they did. So they knew enough of the ritual of sacrifices of the Israelites. And they also found young and, um, healthy nursing cows and gathered a brand new cart that was going to pull the ark and their guilt offering. Um, They plan to use the nursing cows as a test to make sure that God really is in control. What I didn't um, catch the first time reading this is that a nursing cow would have natural instincts to return quickly to her calf. So the Philistines are allowing God to confirm his power and control by releasing the nursing calves and watching where they pull the cart. Their natural instincts should have had them return immediately to their calves. But as we see in 1 Samuel, the cows immediately take the path towards the Israelites and head straight to Beth Shemesh instead of their nursing calves. The five leaders of the Philistines follow as far as they can, and they turn back when they see the Israelites offering sacrifices. At this point, there's no denying God or his power, even his control over the animals. Yet they turn their backs and they walk away. They return to their home full of hope that things will go back to normal for them. So we can pause here. All is good, right? God's people have the ark back. The Philistines have done what they need to do to get rid of God. And it feels kind of like the end of a really good feel-good movie. And they live happily ever after. Except we know that that's not the case here because 
Although the ark had just been returned, the people are rejoicing. They sacrifice cows. They make a burnt offering. They're, you know, kind of worshiping. Did anyone else feel a little jarred and taken back by the next section? Because when we look at verses 19 and 20, it says, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then the men ask, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to who shall he go up away from us? What had gone wrong? The return of the ark and the heavy weight brought on the Israelites is considered the center and most important part of this larger story. In Tim Chester's commentary, he says, the ark was dangerous for the Philistines, but it's just as dangerous for the Israelites. What did they do wrong and what do we have to learn? Well, the commentaries vary in thought on this, but generally speaking, the Israelites did three things wrong. First, according to the Leviticus law, they should have sacrificed a male and not a female cow. First, Leviticus 1.3 says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Secondly, they treated the ark as a trophy, lifting it high up on a, ark, on a rock for everyone to see. And according to Numbers 4.5, they should have covered it. When the camp says, when the camp is set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of testimony with it. Finally, they look inside the ark and they even touch the ark, which was not permitted. The bottom line and the most important thing for us to understand is that they did not have reverence towards the Lord and his holiness. The holiness of God is a theme that is displayed throughout the book of 1 Samuel, starting with Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. The ark represented the presence of God. There are other places in the Bible where the presence of God is described. We think of Moses with the burning bush in Exodus 3. Moses turns himself towards the presence of the Lord, but the Lord calls out to him, Do not come near. Take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. There was nothing special about the dirt that Moses was standing on. It was the presence of the Lord that made it holy ground. Instead of understanding the holiness in the presence of God found with the ark, the Israelites quickly forgot and instead viewed the ark as a symbol of their own victory. They had no reverence for the Lord, or as Aaron thoughtfully pointed out, they lacked all in the Lord. They prop it up like a, on the rock, like a trophy for all to see, a trophy they believed they had earned. Can't we relate to this? Are you like me and you quick to receive the pats on the back and forget to give glory to God? I'll gladly soak in the blessings and the benefits from the Lord but too quickly grumble and complain when trials and seasons of waiting come. I found myself actually justifying the Israelites here, thinking they didn't do exactly what they were supposed to do, but they were excited, and at least they celebrated the return of the ark. They they sacrificed, so, I mean, they, like, surely that was good enough. 
Um, but God knew their hearts and God knows our hearts. When it comes to God's holiness, we can't be good enough. We will always fall short of his glory. Jackie Hill Perry's book, Holier Than Thou, has challenged me as I've been studying through 1 Samuel. Like the Israelites, we want God's love and blessings, but we separate that from his holiness. Jackie explains this really well. So I'm going to read an excerpt from her book. It's a little longer quote. Um, there, there are times when our conversations around the holiness of God make it seem as if holiness is a part or a piece of God that God moves in between attributes when deciding how to be. He chooses to be vengeful. That if God were a sweet potato pie, holiness is one slice of it that's set aside from others. On one plate is holiness, on another plate is love. However, holiness is not an aspect of God. Holy is who he is through and through. His attributes are never at odds with one another, nor do they switch places depending on God's mood. They are him. God is his attributes. That means all that is in God simply is God. When God loves, it is holy love. When God reveals himself as judge, pouring out his cup on the deserving, he has not ceased to be loving or holy either. In all that he is, in all that he does, He is always himself. We expect love and blessings from God without understanding his holiness, without sitting in all of him. Sometimes we even like to parade our messiness and celebrate God's grace with little reverence to his holiness. Looking back at this text, chapter six concludes with the men of Beth Shemesh questioning Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? It almost feels comical as we continue reading. And we see that the Israelites actually respond the same way the Philistines do. And they make plans to move the ark to another town. They're like, we just got to get rid of this thing. So they don't acknowledge their sin. They don't even cry out to the Lord in prayer. It says the people mourned because of the Lord's wrath. We learn in the first few chapters, in the first few verses of chapter seven, that the ark settles in a town that I can't pronounce. And, um, someone is charged with care of him who I can't pronounce. Elizar. Um, so 20 years go by and it says Israel laments after the Lord. So Samuel has not been mentioned since chapter three. And now, over 20 years, he is back in the picture. And the first thing we see him do is he gathers all the people together in Mitzvah, and he prays to the Lord on their behalf. It is important to note that Mitzvah means watchtower, and it was used specifically for military purposes as it gave great visibility to the people. As we continue to read, this will become important. Both the Philistines and the Israelites have asked, how can we stand in the presence of God? As Samuel comes to lead the people, he will shepherd their hearts like a pastor to understand the holiness of God and how to respond to our sin to a holy God. The first words we see Samuel speak to the people is in verse three, when he says, 
If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away foreign gods and the Ashroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. I want to pause here and share how this struck a chord with me as I was studying. Last week, I was struggling to sleep one night. Not sure if anyone has ever experienced that. Um, I was worried about a million big and small things. And then I started to think about First Samuel. And I had this image that really convicted me. As I was unable to sleep, I thought about all the times I replace or add to God with my idols. Through the cross, which we will talk about a little bit later, I have access to the spirit of God. I literally have the presence of God with me. And yet I look to idols for comfort and control. I have the head knowledge and yet my heart wanders to the shiny thing that might give me instant or temporary gratification. Instead of reading his word first thing, I grab my phone. I concern myself with how the world and others view my children because I want to be reflected well. Instead of seeking comfort through God's word, I find comfort in shopping or maybe a glass of wine. I stop letting people in as a form of self-preservation and control. Instead of pouring my heart out before the Lord as David does throughout the Psalms, I go for a run with my friend talk Dave's ear off at night, or I call my mom. I seek other relationships before the relationship with my savior. A tornado hit our little town and in shock, I packed up and I headed to my favorite place to seek comfort and protection with my family. Someone attacks my character and I literally fall apart instead of resting in a father who created me for his good work and glory. And so while I may not have a giant statue of an idol in my backyard, or worship tiny little statue gods. I have seen God crush and destroy my idols, and he brings me to my knees in repentance and reminds me that he is a holy and jealous God who wants all of my worship. Like the Philistines and the Israelites, we can't hold on to our little gods and live faithfully to the one true God. As Jen Wilkins says in her new book, The Ten Words to Live By, When we cling to God and to something else, we become unstable in all our ways. What little gods are you holding on to right now? How are you worshiping God plus something or someone else? As we look back to our text, we see that Samuel doesn't try to justify the Israelites' sin or even comfort them. After he gathers to pray, he leads them to repentance fasting and worshiping for years. The Israelites have lamented over the consequences of their sin, but they held on to their sin. They blamed God for their circumstances, but never thought to look to their actions and where their worship stood. Like the Philistines, they experienced the power of God. And instead of allowing this to transform their hearts and move them towards the Lord, they turned from him and worshiped other gods. Are you ever like the Israelites and care more about the effects of sin than sin itself? Other times, you know that you have created a sinful pattern, but acknowledging it will mean you need to move from it. Do you ever get so caught up in grumbling and sulking in your circumstances 
that you suddenly realize you haven't even prayed about it. Samuel teaches them and us that true repentance is confessing sin, moving away from the sin, and turning towards God. It is only then that the blessings from the Lord come. In Acts 3.19, it says, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Last week, Aaron talked about the many ways we question the Lord with our whys. And we see here how Samuel directs the Israelites to search their hearts before the Lord. As David writes in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So maybe next time we find ourselves in a place of asking God why, because we know we will. We can remember his word and turn towards him in faith and repentance. My two boys are becoming members of the church soon, and we've had a lot of conversations about uh, repentance. And teaching kids true repentance is hard. I don't know if anyone's experienced this, but I shouldn't be surprised because I really do fall into the same trap that they do. And this is basically a scenario that happens around my house, especially when they were younger. But I would say to brother one, you need to go say sorry to your brother. And then to the other brother, I'd say, and now you need to say, I forgive you. And then as if all is good, I will conclude with, okay, now go play and stop fighting. And, you know, that's kind of where we would leave it. And we sometimes look for that quick fix or that swift movement from the uncomfortableness of sin. But, but repentance requires that we acknowledge our sin and turn from it. But if we stop there, we're just trying to be good enough for God. This kind of repentance can leave us in an unhealthy cycle of trying to be good enough for God's grace. Instead, the holy God draws us back to himself. Samuel signifies this in our text um, by pouring out the water and fasting. As we continue through the text, we see that the Philistines became concerned when they see that all of Israel is gathered in mitzvah. They're assuming that Israel is planning an attack on them, and so they make plans to move towards Israel. When Israel gets word of this, they become very nervous and concerned for their lives. In verse 8, they say, Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel makes a burnt offering before the Lord, and as verse 9 says, he cries, he cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered. As the Israelites are worshiping and offering burnt sacrifices to the Lord, the Philistines draw near and attack. But God... With his power and glory, thunders a mighty sound and sends the Philistines into confusion. I love how creative our God is, just decides to use noise. Um, so the Israelites pursue them and defeat them with the help of the Lord. As we look at this final section of 1 Samuel 7, we're reminded of our sure and certain hope. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. Ebenezer means stone of help. 
And with this, Samuel was setting up a visible reminder to the people of, that God had carried them through and that it was he that had helped them defeat the enemies. The people of Israel were faithful. They repented. They drew near to the Lord. They worshiped and they gave him glory. The Lord responded by giving them peace and establishing Samuel as their judge for many years. I really love how this part of 1 Samuel buttons up nicely and points us directly towards our real hope and help, which is Jesus Christ. Our Ebenezer is the cross. Our stone of help is the cross of Jesus, because while God used Samuel to shepherd and move his people towards the Lord, God had an even bigger rescue plan for his people. And so, as I referenced earlier, we no longer need an ark of the Lord because of his son and the sacrifice on the cross. We have direct access to the Holy Spirit, and it is the spirit that convicts us of our sins and moves us towards the Lord. So as we consider God's holiness, and as we wrestle with our idols, remember our help found at the cross of Jesus. Jesus, who says in Matthew, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest with your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for a beautiful morning that we can gather here um, to um, open your word and to learn more about you and who you are, Lord. And um, I thank you for all of these women here this morning and those who are joining us virtually, Lord. Lord, I pray for our times in our small groups, Lord. I pray that your spirit would be, um, you know, just opening us up, opening up our hearts to this text and to what you have for us to grow and learn in you, Lord. And um, I just thank you for the privilege, privilege it is to study your word together, Lord. And I pray this in your name. Amen.